It's January 28th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First, we'll cover some local science and tech stories, including a pair of upcoming events. Andrea Bertoli will tell us about the Sustainability Unconference. Then Vanessa Chong will tell us about the Davis Levin First Amendment Conference. And finally, we'll talk to Steve Price and Terry Kirby from the University of Hawaii School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology about the Hawaii Undersea Research Laboratory. Have your questions and thoughts ready to call in or tweet, but first the headlines. One of the major fields of research conducted in Hawaii is astronomy, which is a factor both in scientific terms as well as economic ones. But two university programs have differing views on the financial impact of astronomy across the state and on Maui in particular. Last month, the UH Economic Research Organization, or UHERO, said that the astronomy sector had a total impact of $167 million statewide in 2012, $5.34 million of that on Maui. But the Institute of Astronomy puts the Valley Isle number at $41 million, taking into account new projects and a wider range of research. The Institute for Astronomy worked with UHERO on the original survey, which was conducted late last August. But as Maui County officials now contemplate proposed expansions to observatories atop Haleakala, the economic impact of the scientific work performed there came to the forefront. After the Maui News reported this past weekend that the economic activity of astronomy on Maui was relatively small, Institute for Astronomy Assistant Director Mike Mayberry told the Associated Press that UHERO's number only included the study of natural objects and phenomena. Mayberry said uh, that if you add in work done in support of man-made objects in space like satellites and telescopes and include work conducted by the Air Force as well as UH, the $41 million figure is substantial compared with the $58 million in activity on Hawaii Island or $25 million on Kauai. Uh, the biggest facility on Maui is the Maui Space Surveillance Site with 117 staff members and over $26 million in annual economic impact. Uh, with the 2017 completion of the Daniel K. Inoue Solar Telescope, another $18 million per year, $18 million per year will be added to the tally with uh, 35 full-time Maui-based employees. Uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, they would find this sort of discrepancy when both of these agencies were sort of working together to come up with the totals. And I think I might have misstated that it, Kauai was uh, $1.2 million versus Maui 2.5. or You know, so it, it was a, a, num- a factor of many times. Mm-hmm. That, that the discrepancy was, but I kind of liked it. Did in a way call attention to the overall study and the larger number of 167 million dollars in a year across the state. I mean, we cover a lot of astronomy here because it's a science show and we love looking into space. But it is a significant economic driver for Hawaii. Yeah, and you know the um, the fact that Maui does a lot of uh, surveillance of the of space uh, in terms of satellite and not and debris, right? I mean, they do. I think most of that work is done on Maui. Absolutely. A facial recognition system used by the Honolulu Police Department will now be made available to law enforcement in all counties in the state. Provided by Virginia-based MorphoTrack, the system is housed at the State Criminal Justice Data Center and has been in use for uh, a year. In announcement today, the company says its system works with a database of more than 450,000 photos and videos of, quote, known identities, unquote, and provides fast and accurate facial searches to help link mugshots and other images to images from security cameras and other sources. MorphoTrack was already providing the automated fingerprint identification system used by all law enforcement agencies in Hawaii, and the Hawaii Criminal 
uh, Justice Data Center began work to implement the facial recognition component in 2011 prior to the APEC conference. Since going online a year ago, the company says its system has helped HPD identify previously unknown criminal suspects and homicide victims as well as provide other investigative intelligence. One example given is identity theft cases where suspects are captured on closed-circuit video systems. Frequently, such systems do generate low-resolution, poor-quality imagery, but MorphoTrack says that its facial recognition algorithms are the best in the industry. This expansion will allow law enforcement agencies across the state to take advantage of the technology. Leanne Moriyama, administrator of the Hawaii Criminal Justice Data Center, said in a statement, quote, Building on the partnership with the Honolulu Police Department, our largest local law enforcement agency, the state is expanding access to all counties in the state of Hawaii. I just want to know if uh, the, out of the 100, I mean 450,000 photos and videos of known identities, I might You're be totally one in the of system. Them. I would I would think you are, I, but I, yeah, but it is the it's the primary vendor for their AFIS system, the fingerprint system, and um, I, in researching it was when I found that they were working before the APEC security mm-hmm. conference. Obviously, they were looking for an exemption from procurement. It was a five hundred and something thousand dollar system, but uh, it is something that they did at the state level for the justice uh, data justice data center um, under the uh, under the attorney general. So it makes sense that at least if it's a resource there, it can be a resource for all of them. Well, and this is not that surprising because. You you know, this capability is already available on Google and Facebook. I mean, you know, when you look at an image on Facebook and it's already identifying who that person might be, there's got to be some facial identity. Certainly, I would say the technology is more pervasive, but there's a significant difference between, uh, say, private company use of that technology ah. and government use. Ah. Uh, probably a, a matter of some interest to a guest we're going to hear from in just a couple of minutes, but uh, there's the news. Okay, well, moving to the tech calendar Tomorrow on the Big Island, the Hawaii Tech Exchange will hold its Hawaii Island Game Developers Meetup. Tomorrow's gathering will feature a small session on Apple's Sprite Kit Game Engine for smartphones, tablets, and desktop computers. Again, that's on uh, Hawaii Island. It's the Hawaii Tech Exchange at 259 uh, 259 Haile Street in Hilo. And for more information, you can visit hitx.co. A quick reminder, today after the show brings the monthly Wetware Wednesday meetup for developers and software engineers. Tonight, geeks will gather at Hemingway Courtyard up at Manoa Gardens on the UH Manoa campus. The featured speaker will be Scott Robertson from the Hawaii Computer Human Interaction Lab, and he's going to talk about his research into what role social media plays in political campaigns and voter engagement. And now joining us is Andrea Bertoli, and uh, she's here to tell us about the Sustainability Unconference. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Hi, guys. Thanks very much. So this uh, Sustainability Unconference, kind of give us a sense of what this unconference format is like. Sure. So an unconference format is is pretty neat, actually. It gives people who are at a conference the chance to speak to everyone there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, if you go to a regular conference, there's maybe five to ten people that speak throughout the day. The unconference gives you the chance to hear from the people who are next to you and uh, gives you a chance to really learn from your colleagues and your community. It's a really it's a really cool idea. And so in terms of uh, the, the topic of sustainability, what are we uh, sort of expecting to have as, as maybe the potential topics of conversation? Well, as we, as we know, the topics of sustainability can range from everything from food to energy to transportation, waste, water, uh, sustainable living. So we actually are keeping it pretty open, mm-hmm. and the people that are attending are going to be talking about whatever really they're passionate about. So we have people that are from natural investments. We have people that are 
from solar. We have people that are farmers coming. And really what they're going to do is bring their expertise and their passion to this event so that they can share that with other people and help other businesses grow. Mm-hmm. Now, sustainability has been a growing topic, certainly, both on the science and tech side as well as in the 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 indigenous community, the local communities, the eating local and such like that. Um, so I was impressed by a number of the partner organizations and other groups. Um, you, some of them are Spartan sponsors. Some of them are providing the coffee. I mean, uh, what are some of the people, who are some of the people that are helping you put this event on? That's a great question, and I'm so happy to talk about that. We are so excited about the amount of sponsors that we've been able to get for this event. We have Revolusun. We have Hawaii Solar and Skylights. We have Honolulu Beer Works. They're one of our newest sponsors, Honolulu Furniture Company. We're getting an amazing array of food from our local farmers through Oahu Fresh and also from Down to Earth, Whole Foods, Kokua Market. They're all going to be providing food, snacks. We have an excellent local healthy chef who's coming to help prepare the food as well. So it's going to be super healthy, sustainable for our bodies, but Mm -hmm. then also as much locally sourced produce as possible, which is good for our island. And we're working with Tealit, which is a very cool fair trade tea company. Oh, Elise? Elise? Yeah. Coming back? Well, she's not coming back, unfortunately, but she has gifted us some really beautiful tea, some Japanese green tea that we're going to be sharing with our guests. And then we also have a carbon neutral coffee that's going to be um, one of our first sponsors we got mm-hmm. was a company called Tiny Footprint Coffee. And they actually offset all of the carbon from all the growing, the shipping, the packing, everything that they do. So we're trying to really weave sustainability into every aspect of it. We've got reusable name tags. We're doing the uh, D-Bed Zero Waste event um, checklist. And so we're really trying to infiltrate it as much as we can. So how long have you been sort of uh, working on the organization of this unconference? Actually, it's it's been coming together pretty quickly. I'm working on it with my partner, Scott Cooney, from Mm -hmm. Pono Home. And we have been working on it for about a month and a half now. So we've actually been able to pull a lot together really quickly. I think the fact that it came together that quickly kind of shows about how mm. how popular and how strong this topic is in the local community. Now, you mentioned that attendees are sort of the speakers, which is different from your average conference. Um, but the other, you also said that the topics are kind of decided when you get there. I mean, it's hard for you to predict, but what I, it's, I heard several solar companies. I heard several food companies. I would imagine those would be most likely things that would be a session. Definitely. So we're working... Um, we, we are hoping that everybody comes with some ideas about what they want to talk about. So we have um, farmers, we have writers, we have, again, sustainable investment people coming. We're going to give the kind of larger sponsors a chance to speak during lunchtime to talk about solar and talk about natural investing with Michael Kramer. And we are going to let the attendees come and talk about what their passion is. So some people are interested in talking about starting their own business, starting a green business. Some people want to talk about green business opportunities in Honolulu. So we'll have different, we'll have three different speaker sessions throughout the day. And we'll also have a a workshop opportunity too. So if people want to delve a little bit deeper into, you know, for example, developing social media for their brand or how do they really turn their company into a zero waste company, things Mm -hmm, like that. mm -hmm. So... Well, yeah. Andrew, um, I, I mentioned, I noticed that as an organizer, of course, you're passionate about it, and you also r- run a site, you write a blog, it might be more than a blog, a news site of a topic of particular interest. So what will people hear you share a passion and interest in? I'm actually probably going to be doing a fermentation workshop. So food is a big passion of mine. I'm a chef and educator, and I'm going to be teaching my famous um, kimchi and sauerkraut, which will then be serving at the event. So oh, that's probably what I'm going to talk about. Now, the, does that your fermentation like sort of uh, get you into like uh, alcoholic drinks? I don't do booze. Oh, no, okay. <laughs> I do I, I do food curious. for salads. Oh, okay. um, you know, certainly you can delve into that. We have Honolulu Beer Works to help us out at the end of the day uh-huh. for that. So give us the uh, details on where, when, and how much. So it's going to be February 7th. It's going to be at the Proto Hub. We've been partnering with them, and it's been a great partnership mm-hmm. so far. Sustainabilityunconference.com is our website, and you can buy tickets on Eventbrite. It's only $35. 
And what day good. is that again? It's February 7th at the Proto Hub in Kakako. Well, that's Fantastic. a Saturday. Saturday, yeah. We'll, we'll put, the, uh, put the links up on our show notes uh, later on. Okay, Thanks, good. Andrea. Thanks, guys. And uh, now joining us also is Vanessa Chong. She's the executive, executive director of ACLU Hawaii, and she's here to tell us about the Davis-Levin First Amendment Conference. Welcome to the show, Vanessa. Aloha. Thanks for coming. Mahalo for this opportunity. Yeah, so tell us about this uh, um, sort of Davis-Levin First Amendment Conference. Uh, now, you know, I'm going to ask you this question. How long has this conference been going on? Because, you know, I'm... <laughs> This is the first time I'm hearing oh, about really? it. Oh, really? Yeah, really. As journalism folks have heard about it. Oh, okay. It started actually in 1997, sparked by a great idea by the Robert Reese Trust. And the focus of the conference is to bring together prominent voices only when the stars align, voices that are front and center in some of the most important debates facing our country. Mm-hmm. So we don't have it every year. We call oh, it our okay. mega wave event. It only happens when the stars align and certain voices are available to bring together on the same dais. And, and okay, so tell me, what stars align for the, the major voice on, on this conference? Well, I encourage your listeners to have an even more memorable Valentine's Day. The, by joining the local ACLU in our Davis Levin First Amendment Conference, which will which begins at 9:30 a.m. and will include a conversation with uh, Edward Snowden, the NSA whistleblower, through video link uh, from Moscow, Russia, mm-hmm. and also in person Snowden's lawyer Ben Wisner. Uh, a lawyer with the ACLU and also director of our speech, privacy, and technology project. The cost for this event is only $5, and we also have scholarships for those who are on limited income. So we're really encouraging students in particular to have have this rare opportunity. It's a rare chance for a Hawaii audience to hear directly from and interact with an individual who sacrificed his career and his life in the United States uh, for his beliefs. Uh, It will be held at the Hawaii Convention Center, and what's also exciting about the program is beginning at 9.30 um, before the conversation with Snowden, it will be preceded by a special screening of the Oscar-nominated documentary uh, Citizen Four, which chronicled Snowden's first media appearance as an NSA whistleblower. Mm-hmm. So from the time a journalist travels to Hong Kong, holds the interview, and the nationwide immediate repercussions that occurred. Mm-hmm. Now, back in 2012, of course, was before um, these uh, revelations came, before he made the decisions that he did. But he was uh, active to some extent in the local community. He gave an encryption talk at high capacity in uh, December 2012. I'm a big believer in encryption. I still use PGP, even though I feel like a more and more of a dinosaur these days. But uh, there is that local connection. And regardless of uh, the what you might feel about the political ramifications, the clear policy ramifications are still rever- reverberating today in terms of government surveillance, mass government surveillance, and even when we're talking about data breaches of movie companies, I think these topics are still relevant. For anybody interested in the kind of spying that's being done by our government in the people's name, this is a perfect opportunity to hear directly from those individuals who are really front and center. So this is a chance for anybody interested in Hawaii to literally have a front seat to this conversation. Now, are the um, is the conference sort of built around Snowden? I think is probably the the main line, uh, you know, headline. What are some of the other topics that you might have, uh, you know, during that uh, that sort of conference event? Well, it's going to be far ranging, so it's going to be ma- 
mass surveillance, privacy, and the theme of our program is can democracy survive secrecy? Mm -hmm. That is a a large question, and regardless of what you think about what Snowden did, regardless of what you think about what our government did, this is a chance for people in Hawaii who are concerned, especially given our geographic isolation, our importance to the military, our importance to the government, the amount of money that comes in from the federal government to support surveillance, which is likely going on right now as we speak, Uh, our emails, our correspondence, uh, facial recognition software, which you talked about earlier in the Mm -hmm. program. These are important questions that people may feel don't touch their lives day to day until, until they're called in by the government, until they pop up on a website, until they're called in by the local police. So What we want to avoid is a dragnet situation where Americans feel they have to prove their innocence as opposed to the government singling out individuals because there's a good reason for it. And the ACLU is not opposed to having appropriate measures regarding national security. Mm -hmm. But don't take my word for it. I encourage you to come down and hear for yourself. Well, you know, what's interesting also is that, uh, you know, all the Snowden revelations uh, have brought some uh, attention and and sort of dialogue discussion about some of the the tech companies that were in sort of involved. And I think it has had the sort of unintended consequence of a lot of people questioning their participation in a lot of social media sites because now they're extra concern about their privacy, right? So I think, you know, it, it also impacted a lot of the tech businesses and companies uh, going forward. So I think it has some very strong global impact in terms of what he, um, what he, I guess, made people aware of. Definitely. And it's, it's created a raging debate and controversy that continues to this day. Mm-hmm, we do. Mm-hmm. Mass surveillance continues. There's so much classified information that average ordinary Americans are not aware of. And what Snowden did was cracked what a lot of us knew was going on and provided the proof that, in fact, Congress, our lawmakers, judiciary, the executive branch were all hiding certain secret plans, which now the American people are waking up to. Mm-hmm. And so this is an, a turning point in our national conversation, and the ACLU of Hawaii is proud to present this program. All Sounds right. Good. So once again, where and when is it is, and where can they find more information it's about It's Saturday, program? Valentine's Day, February 14, Hawaii Convention Center. Program starts at 930. Uh, tickets are just $5. So for anybody interested, they can uh, go to the ACLU website, aclu.hawaii.org, or call our hotline at 522 522- 25906 neighbor islanders please call toll free 8775445906 sounds good we'll put that all on our show notes and thanks andrea for uh oh, vanessa for joining us my pleasure mahalo thank, thank you. you and that's what's been happening this week we'll take a short break and when we return we'll be joined by steve price and terry kirby about the Hawaii Undersea Research Laboratory. What are some of the discoveries attributed to Hurl? And, of course, what are they looking to discover in the future? We'd love your questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live here in the studio. You can tweet us at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is BiteMarks Cafe. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. 
Hi, I'm Roger Houston, author of Keeping the Faith Without a Religion. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how faith shows up in your life. Sunday morning at 11. On the next morning edition, we have the inside story. Inside a controversial spy agency and inside the Super Bowl locker rooms of Bill Parcells. Inside these locker rooms, it's not all what people think. There's a lot of sensitivity there. Those championship teams, they're kind of attached together. I'm Steve Inskeep, one of pro football's great coaches on the next morning edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings from 5 to 8.30 on HPR One. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Hawaii Supply. And welcome back to Bite Mart Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is uh, Steve Price and Terry Kirby. Steve is the maintenance chief over at uh, Hurl and uh, also a pilot. That's right. Meanwhile, Terry is the chief pilot as well as the operations director of Hurl. Since 1981, he has completed hundreds of submersible dives around the Hawaiian Islands and the Central Pacific. And what missions are Hurl submersibles best suited for? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Steve and Terry, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you, Bert. It's great to be here. Yep. How are you doing today? Oh, very good. Now, uh, Steve, we'll start with you. And uh, you guys have uh, both been involved with uh, with uh, Hurl. We love that acronym, Hurl. We'll just say it all the time uh, during the show. But, we, you know, we've, we've done a number of stories about some of the discoveries that the, uh, that the, the program has uh, uncovered. And, but we never have had people from Hurl on the show. So it's great to have you. Steve, give us a sense of... You know, how did how did the whole program kind of get started? And it's been around for like decades, right? Yeah, it's been, uh, I guess, about 30 years, don't you think, Terry? Yeah, yeah so the program is actually, uh, we actually started our first dives in 1981. It formed mm-hmm. in 1980, and uh, we've been basically diving all over the Pacific since 1981. Yeah, and now, I, was I a, came on about 2000, mm-hmm. so I've been 15 years now. Was there something uh, sort of... Uh, in terms of its formation back then, was it submersibles remotely act, uh, remotely controlled? I mean, was it sort of the same kind of program, or has it evolved over time? No, it uh, started with uh, uh, manned submersibles, mm-hmm. and that has been basically our bread and butter. Um, the program was formed through the, um, the NOAA's National Sea Research Program through the University of Hawaii. At the time, the University of Hawaii uh, had, had been given a submersible, the STAR-2, by General Dynamics, and uh, we reconfigured that. It was renamed Makali'i, and that little submersible launched this program in 1981. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, was there something uh, unique about the uh, capabilities? How deep was that first uh, submersible able to go? That first submersible, that little sub that, that launched this program, only had an operating depth of 1,200 feet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but our very first program, right out of the box as a science program, was three months at Inuitak Atoll. And our first customers were like the, uh, uh, the Defense Nuclear Agency and the Air Force Weapons Lab and the Department of Energy. Uh, we actually did the first dives in the atomic bomb craters at Inuitak Atoll. Mm. So that little sub that launched that program, um, we dove it all over the Pacific uh, with an operating depth of 1,200 feet. And it wasn't until um, in 1985 that we got the first Pisces sub. 
than that and extended our depth capability from 1,200 feet to 6,500 feet. So that's interesting. So you went out to sort of, was that the, in the Marshall Islands that you were? Yes, yeah. And, and yeah. what kinds of, uh, uh, I guess, atomic blast craters were <laughs> created? Well, they did, they did uh, something like 46 atomic bomb tests there. And this was the first time that anybody had ever actually dived in. We were doing environmental assessments and we were doing fisheries dives. Mm-hmm. So we were doing exploration outside the atolls. That was my first exposure to uh, atoll diving. It mm-hmm. was pretty amazing. But um, that was three months of operations that we did uh, out there. Uh, we did uh, some of the early pioneering exploration, uh, starting with the Makali'i in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, and, um, and uh, also supporting the uh, Natural Energy Lab. Uh, that little sub was a real workhorse. Oh, did yeah. a lot of work all around the islands. And uh, if you're ever at the Maui Ocean Center yeah. and you get under their deep ocean display and you see a little sub there, that's not a toy. That's the Makali'i, and it's, it's retired now. Oh, I see. Now, oh. Steve, um, you know, uh, you've been at it, you said, 15 years, I believe? Yeah, I came in 2000. And what I find fascinating is, of course, now undersea research is sexy and millionaires want to do it. You got Richard Branson. You got uh, James Cameron after Titanic getting into it. You have Eric Schmidt funding deep. You know, it's like, okay, yeah. well, either we can fly things into space or we can try to go to the deepest parts of the ocean and it almost seems like uh, you know Iron Man is coming to life but it hasn't always been the case so what do you think has fed this sort of newfound passion for deep sea research something that you've done from way before it was sexy yeah uh, it, that's great a lot <laughs> of uh, a lot of billionaires are getting interested in it and they're one thing that we're noticing is is they want to build their own toys and some <laughs> of them are Pretty um, Tony Stark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're kind of have a lot of uh, gadgets to them and whistles, but they're really not very practical for doing real science work. Um, you know, the subs we have are real workhorses. They're proven. They um, can can do the sampling that's required. Um, all these different aspects. That so, what do you need think to. changed that 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 made it something that they would pursue when it's something that's clearly been worth pursuing for for a long, long time? Uh, you know. I, I I can't speak for them, but they. <laughs> All right, what, you know, what drove you w- without your billions of dollars to get into this field? Oh, I've always been interested in the ocean. I've spent my entire working career in, underneath. I started in nuclear subs. I was a, a hard hat diver for ten years in the in Gulf of Mexico and West Africa, and I worked with one man subs before I came over to Hurl. What's a What's a hard hat diver? Um, it's it's a commercial diver. We I worked on the oil rigs and uh huh uh huh. And, and uh, what what kind of uh, was that a special suit that you had to wear? Or is it one of those? Uh, it's, uh, it's helmet diving. It's surface supplied. Uh-huh. Um, some of it's um, mixed gas saturation diving. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all suited for the industrial environment, offshore. Do you get to do much of that uh, anymore? Uh, we do some scuba diving. It's okay. not to the tiny types of depths I was working then. It's mm-hmm. uh, more like sixty feet, but. Uh, we get wet once in a while. Now, Terry, can you give us an idea when we're talking about that scale? Because I can imagine a scuba diver. I can imagine sort of the cartoonish guy in a big tank with a thing on his like, head. Like 20,000 leagues right. under the sea? What kind of depth are we talking about where Hurl is in its element? Well, the Pisces 5, like I say, their operating depth is 6,500 mm-hmm. feet or 2,000 meters. And uh, in, in the submersible, you're in one atmosphere, and we're untethered. It's like getting in a spaceship and going to another planet. So you're basically in a seven-foot diameter command sphere, and you're at one atmosphere, so you can go down to 6,000 feet for eight hours and come back up and open the hatch and climb out and go have dinner. 
Joys at one atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Versus, actually, uh, actually, usually go to the bathroom and then go back <laughs> down for eight hours. <laughs> okay, well, so what? There's no bathroom on the submersible? Um, no, we have we have uh, like pee bags for the gents and pee bottles for the ladies. But um, other than that, uh, we usually launch at eight o'clock in the morning. We have the sub back on deck by five p.m. So it's a full working day on the bottom. Ah, got it. We're talking to Steve Price and Terry Kirby from the Hawaii Undersea Research Laboratory about their work and their technology deep under the sea, learning the secrets of the ocean. If you've got a question, if you've ever been curious about it, this is your chance to call. It's uh, 941-3689 on Oahu or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. So, Terry, you talked a little bit about this, the history of it, the fact that you can go see the original submarine. Um, but where is, uh, what is, what is your uh, state of the art today? I mean, it's not going to be the Richard Branson super yacht undersea um, sphere, but is it essentially the same giant metal ball? It's uh, well, the two Pisces submersibles that are uh, that are based at the Mackay Pier, and uh, that's open anytime anybody wants to come in and check them out. Um, they're, uh, they're it's a seven foot diameter sphere. The submersibles themselves are twenty feet long and weigh fourteen tons. And we we uh, do our service work out there, but we work off of a support ship. Um, the Kaimi Kaio Kanaloa, or KOK, which is based out at the university's Marine Center. So we normally um, are, uh, when we are in the heyday of our exploration operations, we'd have um, times at sea of like uh, three or four months. The longest we did was in 2005. We went from here to Samoa, and for five months, nonstop, we dove on 13 active submarine volcanoes between Samoa and New Zealand and back. It was just an incredible um, journey of exploration. Mm-hmm. So that's a kind of scope of work that we've done for decades. And we have a, we have an operation that is a, a proven, reliable operation with decades of service and a, and a flawless safety record. Um, and uh, that's an operation that has been, there's only eight of these um, deep diving research submersibles in the world that are government supported research subs. Now, yeah. there were some recent uh, discoveries that uh, that you folks were involved in. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, just uh, in the past couple of years, mm-hmm. we found the, the giant Japanese submarine, the I-400. Um, it was one that has been on our list for a while uh, that we've been looking for. Um, and, and also on that same, in fact, on the same day, we found a, a second ship, which you may have seen in the news. They are referring to it as a ghost ship mm-hmm. because it has a, a very picturesque uh, ship's wheel sitting on the stern of the ship, um, which was the USS Kailua, which was an auxiliary cable-laying ship, and uh, both uh, great, interesting histories to them. Yeah, so how did that uh, discovery take place? Is it, was that something that you had sort of already known was in the area, and, and what was it that actually helped fund that effort? Well, in, in that particular case, we had these targets set aside that we had on our hit list, mm-hmm. and each year we do three test and trial dives, and Every year we were knock a few off, and sometimes you go out, you think you got something good, and it turns out to be a big rock. Uh, you just you, you just don't know till you get there. Um, this particular case, um, it was it was a funded dive from uh, NOAA Marine Sanctuaries, was it? Yeah, National Marine Sanctuaries, and they came out and they said, "Hey, we'd like to see uh, some of your targets." And so we uh, said, "Well, these were the two of our most promising ones," and oh. uh, they turned out to be, you know. Right on the money. Mm-hmm. Now, is it a matter of historical preservation that we're looking for? I mean, uh, certainly the value of something like that on that front is clear. But uh, from the research perspective, is there something after the discovery that you are called upon to do, or you're now moving on to the next thing that people want to find? Well, 
they don't always in this case you know we knew the i-400 when we got there mm -hmm. and and the other ship had the numbers uh, you could actually read them on there oh. so it, it, it we went to our list and you know there it was I see, I see. so but in some cases it, there's not enough of the ship left that the top deck may have all been wood like some of the early uh, steamships inter island steamships the the top deck is gone and you just have a hole and of course by that point there's nothing written on them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so then you have to do a little research uh, we have a database that you can go to and say, well, what's lost in this area and how long is it and what type. And in, in the case of these steamships, you could see the the engine inside and tell it's a triple expansion engine. Okay, well, that fits with this. It's the right length. Um, you kind of do a little bit of detective work. And then as you, you know, once you have a name, then you start looking in more about what its history was. Mm -hmm. Now, is there any follow-on work after the discovery? What do you mean by follow-on? Well, uh, you know, once you've discovered, uh, you know, the submarine and, and the ship, uh, what happens then? Is it just like marked, like, hey, we found it, <laughs> and then, you know, like, now you got the scavengers going in? Or what, what, what actually happens now that you know that it, it exists over there? Um, well, well, how we, what actually, how we really got into this, um, uh, finding maritime heritage targets as part of NOAA's National Marine Sanctuary is one of their missions. But none of these organizations, like the National Park Service or National Marine Sanctuaries or the Naval Historical Center, can afford to fund dives to go out and wander around in the dark and try and find some historic targets. Mm -hmm. And how we originally got into this in, in, uh, in 1991, when they were having the 50th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, um, we were actually invited to participate in that anniversary to try and find the midget submarine sunk by the USS Ward on December the 7th. Mm. And um, we met with uh, Dan Lenahan, who is a director of Submerged Cultural Resources Unit of the Park Service, and they had expended all their resources trying to locate this sub and, uh, and couldn't afford sub-dives. But that is when we started in 1992 to use our two to three pre-science dive season test dives to try and locate it. And it took us about 10 years, but in 2002, on our third and last test dive out of the dark, comes the midget submarine sunk by the USS Ward. It was a very exciting day, but uh, that really opened up the support um, for locating mm. these maritime heritage targets. Mm -hmm. And once we found that, that generated funded dives from film documentary groups and from um, government agencies like the Park Service and Sanctuaries. But once we did that, it was Steve that really started researching a database. Steve right now has the most um, extensive database of maritime heritage targets uh, off of South Oahu. And so every day, we'd, every time we'd come up with our pre-dive season, science dive season, the dives, uh, we would have certain targets that if we could go there, um, we'd, we'd, we'd have certain things that we had to accomplish during our test dives. But if we could fit in um, an area, so we would take something uh, in, in the general area and search for it during our test dives. And if we ever found something notable, mm -hmm. then that would generate follow-up funded dives by National Marine Sanctuaries or the Park Service mm -hmm. or film documentary groups. Well, mm -hmm. Steve, that's mm -hmm. interesting. I mean, I like that it's sort of something that you can do as well as the test dives that you're doing, but it benefits uh, a much larger community. I'm curious, when he said that it took 10 years to find the sub, uh, I have no comprehension of how difficult that is, if it's a needle in a haystack, haystack issue or something else. Is 
when I see the news and someone's boat has run aground off here or there, I mean, I'm wondering, is the waters off Oahu just littered with ships and you're trying to find one ship in a number of wrecks? Or is it actually these wrecks are few and far between and you're covering just a ex- massive, expansive area to look for them? Yeah, that's a great question because it, it varies. Because with the midget sub, it happened to be in the defensive sea area outside, and that's all the witnesses said well, it was you know, sunk on the way in. And down in that area, there's just tons of debris, and there's all, a lot of landing craft down there. There's lots of rocks and things that uh, turn up and can block it. If you've got it on your sonar, you may see something else in the way. Mm-hmm. And it, whereas with the, the giant Japanese subs, they were more out into a flat expanse area, and they were huge. And we had two subs that were kind of working together in an area. We would do our uh, our or test exercises where you have a, a lost sub and one would track the other one. So we have to do a number of evolutions and hunting for shipwrecks and things are kind of a byproduct of that, mm-hmm, that we mm-hmm. say, well, let's work down this way and we'll hit this target and then we'll do the next exercise over here and we'll try to find this one. Um, so, and, and with the midget sub, it was, you know, 80 feet long, but it's only six feet in diameter. So if you're looking at the in view on the sonar, it's not a huge target. No, I'm curious, uh, you know, the work that you've done 10 years, and it's probably a laborious effort to not only get the information that puts you in the right direction, but once you discover something, you have a, a point on a map. And then maybe a document, you know, Terry team will come in and say, hey, you know, can you give us a location of this particular wreck? What is it that you decide to determine whether or not somebody has the, you know, let's say the right to ask for that location? I mean, do you give it out publicly or is it something that they have to be a a sort of a special interest in order for them to, you know, find out where that location is? Well, we're in a partnership with the National Marine Sanctuary. So we work really closely with marine archaeologists um, with the National Marine Sanctuaries. And and as soon as we found the Ward's Midget Sub, it immediately came with the jurisdiction of the U.S. State Department, working okay. with the Japanese okay. government. So we have basically become wards of that site to monitor that site. We're trying to do ongoing monitoring um, with National Marine Sanctuaries, and, but also another partner, and that was the National Park Service. Like I mentioned before, all these agencies don't have the type of funding to fund dives to go out and find them. But as soon as we find them, any historic targets... Um, we're working with National Marine Sanctuaries to take archaeologists down there to do surveys um, of the sites. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it is, it's, South Oahu is like a giant undersea museum, a maritime museum. And the way we look at it over all these years, uh, the little by little, we're uncovering all these uh, amazing sites that really span um, Hawaii's maritime history and uh, uncovering these sites. Well, I have to ask a very silly question. Um, You uncover a valuable vessel historically, but let's say it also happens to be carrying a number of gold doubloons. Yeah, yeah, I want to find that. When you talk about uh, being stewards of the site, I mean, what does that mean in terms of other people who might be just sort of following along, trying to find the same things? Well, uh, the the fact that most of these uh, areas are are in fairly deep water pretty much limits uh, the ability for other individuals Individuals to come in and dive on them, and uh, but like you say, there's a lot of billionaires out there with their own submarines and their own ROVs that um, uh, have access to a lot of these areas now. There's nothing that sort of prevents them, or from a jurisdictional standpoint, you know, sort of exploring that and perhaps taking that, uh, you know, that steering wheel off of the ship and putting no, it. No, the there, uh, there is um, uh, there is the uh, uh, protective act that protects uh, submerged cultural resources. So um, mm. 
Yeah, once once they're discovered, we have this historic site, then uh, and it's not like people can go down there and start salvaging it or picking historic. You know, one of the things I want to want to maybe talk a little bit about is when uh, when are we going to have the, uh, the sort of the Disneyland uh, you know submarine tour of all these. Uh, wrecks that are you know south of Oahu because I'm I'm excited about going on that so hold that thought we'll be right back to this short uh, break to continue our conversation with both Steve Price and Terry Kirby about undersea research what does it take to maintain a fleet of submersibles we'd of course love to hear your questions as well that number again is nine four one three six eight nine or from the neighbor islands eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine this is Bite Marks Cafe. Galesburg, Illinois, home until 2004 to a Maytag refrigerator plant. It's sad because, you know, that that's really was the identity of the town for, for a century is what got done in that southwestern corner of town. And then it went away. I'm Kai Rizdahl, Globalization, close to home, next time on Marketplace from APN. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. Where did you come from, my dog? The band, the David Wax Museum, is adapting to life on the road with a baby. And so I picked up my bow and started in on this encore song. And little Calliope, who was maybe seven months, just reached her little hand up and grabbed the bow. (laughs) (laughs) Balancing babies and work. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Thursdays at 6.30 on Hawaii Public Radio. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Steve Price and Terry Kirby about undersea submersibles. And, of course, uh, you know, right before the break, we were talking about the upcoming Disneyland tour of all the underwater wrecks that are out there. But before we get into that, uh, we want to give you the number to call if you want to give us a call and ask us a question or two. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Now, uh, uh, Terry, tell us, you know, is there is there some let's say, commercial opportunity here for, you know, describing this uh, this sort of whole museum of undersea wrecks that are south of Oahu. I mean, you got a ticket. I mean, I want to buy one. Well, that we may actually have to resort to that to keep these submersibles diving. Um, of the of the submersibles in the world, the other two that are in trouble, and we're, we're the only one in the U.S. that actually operates two of these uh, deep diving submersibles. Uh, the Russians operate the Mirrors. And they were in the same problem with lack of funding and support, and they actually started resorting to taking paid customers down to the Titanic. And uh, so it's not out of the question. We're, um, mm. We, we uh, definitely could, uh, could take, give tours on a lot of really historic wreck sites. They call them citizen scientists. Yeah. Ah, we're all into <laughs> citizen science. Now, you have to you know, resolve the, the, the challenge of you know, eight to five on a sub without a bathroom. But, <laughs> but that's, that's beside the point. So you know, from a, from a um, sustainability standpoint, Given the fact that, you know, these billionaires are all building, you know, these fancy ships and having their own submersibles, is that taking away from your ability to actually find the proper, you know, um, sustained funding that you need to, to keep the program going? Well, the, 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 the funding through the, the uh, national or through NOAA um, that actually ended this program um, in 2012, the University of Hawaii has been trying to maintain that um, uh, these submersibles right now um, there is actually a lot of work in the western pacific and and uh, the pisces 
um, have done work in some very unique um, uh, environments or, or unique to the Pacific. And with the expansion of the marine protected areas and the sister site arrangements with uh, the government of Kiribati and areas like the mm-hmm. Phoenix Island protected area, um, with Conservation International, there's exploration that needs to be done to maintain their UNESCO World Heritage status of, of some of these, these uh, monuments. And the Pisces have got decades of experience uh, working in these very environments, and we're an operation that um, uh, has, has, uh, has been out there, has done this work. And we're located in the center of the Pacific. We believe that the University of Hawaii and the state of Hawaii should have some of the world's deep submergence assets located here in the middle of the Pacific. But um, right now, with, um, with a lack of funding support from NOAA and any other federal agencies, the university uh, can't really afford to sustain these assets. Mm-hmm. Well, so does you know, the fact that I think uh, the uh, Schmidt Ocean Institute Schmidt Ocean Institute is here, sort of anchored in Hawaii. I and mean, I think there's a person at UH that actually manages that, and, and they take jobs and go wherever they go. And do they compete with what you guys are capable of delivering? Well, what they're basically doing is um, uh, automated vehicles and remotely operated vehicles, tethered vehicles. Um, they're, right now, the Smithson Institute, what they were doing is actually bottom mapping. Mm-hmm. So there are assets that are coming into the Pacific uh, from the East Coast uh, tethered vehicles that NOAA is bringing out and that Bob Ballard is bringing out to come into the Pacific to try and do this work. And there's just been a trend to get away from manned submersibles. And... Um, uh, we are the man submersibles. Uh, a lot of groups are looking at it, dinosaurs of the past, but uh, because of uh, automated technology, but there is still a, a, a real need and a real advantage to getting the human on the bottom, and that just can't be replaced. Well, Steve, I mean, you worked on the oil rigs, you said, and you've mm-hmm. done a number of dives, and you've worked in, across a number of uh, environments under sea, and certainly safety is one of the things that comes up quite a bit. Uh, um, it's it's not a not a very forgiving environment. You know, when you're talking about how you can have citizen scientists, everyone scanning the sky, it's not as easy for everyone to be looking down deep below, and I think it was the the Nereus, an unmanned sphere that went like 9,000 9, yeah. meters under and then was lost because of the pressures at that depth. Um, can you articulate what Terry said? I mean, the, the benefits of putting a human down uh, that, that you cannot get from an unmanned vehicle? Yeah, the, it's a matter of using all the tools in your toolboxes. Certain things are more suited for different applications. And with an ROV, if you want to work on one site and you want to work around the clock, you, it's it's great, but for exploration, the subs are better because you can move and you, you can just head off in any direction. You're not tethered to a ship that has to, you know, that you're you're like a dog on a mm-hmm, leash. Mm-hmm. Um, where in our case, a ship just kind of follows along and helps the sub navigate to where it's going. It's also a lot more uh, useful on a on these atolls where you're up on a wall and you're you're so close that uh, a ship with an ROV, the ship has a hard time getting in close enough to deploy the ROV to get on that wall, whereas our subs can be dropped out in deeper water, move in, go up, and work all day, and then come back down and go back out and get picked up far away from that atoll. So, mm-hmm. Now so. we're talking to uh, Terry Kirby and uh, Steve Price, both from the Hawaii Undersea Research Laboratory. If you got a question or comment, feel free to give us a call here, 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. I want to welcome uh, Malikai from Kahala to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. 
Hi, really great show. Thanks. Say, uh, I'm not sure you um, mentioned this before, but I was wondering if uh, your guest was involved in the search for Amelia Earhart's plane, uh, number one, and number two, uh, to talk about the Mariana Trench. Fantastic. Okay, sounds good. Uh, uh, Amelia Earhart, were you guys, was uh, Hurl involved? Well, with Hurl was supposed to be. Uh, the, the Tiger Group actually did an expedition to Nikamaroro, and they went with a, a uh, an ROV and an AUV. The AUV was a bluefin AUV that uh, the Phoenix Group actually used to look for the Micronesian Air Flight 370. And um, at um in the Phoenix Islands area, where they thought they might find the remains of a Lockheed Electra, they had uh, 10 days of search time. And they found that that was they were the wrong tools for the job. They were able only able to get in the water four out of the ten days. They got the AUV stuck in the reef two times out of that, and only through uh, amazing ship handling did the the, the ship handler, the KOK, was able to get in close enough off to the wall to try and free it. Mm-hmm. And um, the ROV operators uh, said that uh, that was a, the worst terrain imaginable. And uh, Rick Gillespie from the Tiger Group said that using an ROV, well, he likened it to trying to search for your car keys in the dark in your backyard while looking at using a flashlight and looking through a toilet paper tube. <laughs> so they really wanted to go back to Nicomoro with the Pisces. This is the very kind of work that we've been doing in atolls all over the Pacific. Right. And um, a lot of our coral reef ecosystem dives and our uh, 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 fisheries survey uh, habitat dives is exactly that type of work. Uh, the Pisces are excellent tools for that kind of search. We can go from 2,000 meters right up to 20 meters on these walls and be totally free of uh, a tether. And so uh, that was supposed to happen in uh, 2014, but the Tiger Group couldn't raise the the funds to get the Pisces down there. So how much of a differential are we talking about? I mean, that prevented you know them to fund the Pisces going down. Well, the, the, the Pisces operation um, is the, the cost for a 230-foot ship and two submersibles, about 48000 a day. Mm-hmm. And in the deep submersible industry, the Pisces are the bargain basement sub-operation. Uh, the Alvin is about 65000 a day, and the Japanese Shinkai is about a little over 200000 a mm-hmm. day for a dime. Mm-hmm. So uh, to come up with uh, the, the, the funds to, to actually do the operations— um, uh, they could probably uh, uh, the, the the real problem was the transit time to go from Hawaii all the way to Nicaragua and back. So they were looking at a month, um, ten, but the, ten days each way. Yeah, mm-hmm. and ten days mm-hmm. there, and ten days on site. We we're planning on ten days of uh, search dives. Mm-hmm. So um, Pisces have been very effective. So for you're, that you're talking at least uh, half a million dollars, uh, you know, just to start the the the, the search, right? And yeah. was that was yeah. that basically kind of un unattainable? Um, I think they they had court issues from the previous uh, trip, and they were trying to. It was hard to raise money when they were. Yeah, that's kind of a high you know. standard for a Kickstarter, unless yeah. you know Richard Branson got involved. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. talk about the Mariana Trench. You yeah. know, one of the deepest places on Earth. I'm not. Do you have experience there? I mean, uh, it sounded like that was a unforgiving environment, but the Mariana Trench must certainly be as well. Well, that's way deeper than our subs go. We're see. looking sixty five hundred oh, okay. feet. Okay. So that's. Uh, that's seven the one mi- I think seven uh, miles. Didn't the, the uh, James Cameron try to go down that 
He, he did. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So, yeah. so it, it, that, that takes a special kind of. Uh, yeah, he had a submersible that was specifically built for that one dive, mm-hmm. that one single drop to the to the bottom of the trench, and it was uh, engineered just for that specific dive. Yeah, it's a mm-hmm. great feat because nobody had done it since 1960, you know, when the Trieste went down, and they were there for 20 minutes or something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. and then nobody ever went back until. Uh, James Cameron did it. Well, so. thanks a lot, Malikai, for uh, you know asking those questions. Those are uh, really kind of interesting. I'd like uh, you know, I'd like to see what else can what what else can uh, let's say the Pisces do now, given you know the sort of the price tag, you know forty eight thousand a day. Uh, what are you looking at? I mean, I, I know you're sort of toying with the idea of some commercial activity, but realistically, you know what's in what's in store. Well, if if uh, if the program is funded, there is a definite opportunity um, to do an expedition to the Phoenix Island Protected Area, and the Pisces would be the ideal tools for that job. And uh, so, if if um, the the subs are actually supported and funded, then there is a, a chance that. Um, uh, groups can raise funding from foundations. So that, uh, like when we did the, the five-month expedition in the, in the Kermadex arc, that was a consortium from a lot of different groups, uh, universities. Um, we had Keele University in Germany and institutes and universities from New Zealand. So uh, it was possible to put uh, that whole five-month expedition. It was a little over $3 million, it was like $3.2 million mm-hmm. for um, – for uh, we completed over sixty something dives on thirteen volcanoes and went where nobody had ever been before. Right. So it really opened up the door and exploration. That were mm-hmm. incredible dives. Now, Steve, you know uh, Terry said you have some of the best maps of some of the most interesting uh, sites under under the sea here. Um, for you, I mean, do you have like pet? Is there an Amelia Earhart search for you? Is there something that uh, that maybe you're particularly passionate about that you wish you could spend a month long expedition doing? You mean locally here or, or anywhere? Or anywhere. Yeah, yeah. What, I don't know. There's there's plenty right here that we, there's still things. So what, the, what what what's on your short list? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's uh, the Japanese sub. The I-23 was lost off uh, South Oahu uh, in 1942 with its entire crew on it, and that was they were, you know, stationed ten miles out, and they just lost contact with them. They were reporting in for over a week, and then they just stopped reporting. So that crew is. And that sub is uh, somewhere out there. In the, but imagine that, in the that Japanese case, government might be interested in, in that particular expedition. I would think so when they have that many of their own sailors on Right. Board. But in that case, I mean, you know, 10 miles out, they were stationed there. But then, you know, they went silent. I mean, they could have been taking off somewhere else and then went silent, right? I mean, it could be anywhere from 10 miles to <laughs> yeah. 1,000 miles Always away, Always right? a possibility. This is what we know about right, it. Okay. So it's somewhere they could have, yeah, limped off. But that wasn't their orders. They're, they were waiting— you know, this is when you had your uh, attack of the Emily bombers that dropped bombs on mm-hmm, Tantalus. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. That's what they were waiting for. Oh, mm-hmm. I see. And okay. so they weren't able to give the forecast, so those the weather forecast. So these planes came in, and the island was clouded over. Oh. So that's so, why we believe that they're still out there. It was such an important mission. We don't think that they would have abandoned the mission. They had some type of a malfunction, and they were lost. Um, they're actually here um, specifically to support a second attack on Pearl Harbor uh, less than uh, two months after the, the December 7th attack. Mm-hmm. And their mission was to report on, on weather and ship traffic and to stay hidden and say 10 miles. And they actually called in about eight times um, over a period of time. They were never heard from again. And the Japanese high command decided to go ahead and go through the attack. So we believe 
that the I-23 is still out there somewhere, and that's mm-hmm. been on our list for a long time. Yeah. But that is ultimate needle in the haystack. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but there's a lot of targets out there. I mean, yeah. we yeah. could stay busy for a long time. There's a, a side scan image of an airplane off of uh, about 10 miles south of Diamond Head that we'd like to go to, but there's nothing near it to, to justify piggy, piggyback right, right. in with it. So. So, Terry, in, fi- in terms of finding that uh, funding, I mean, is it a matter of following the same course, uh, finding the grants, the institutions, national perhaps, that, that, that value and can contribute toward this work? Is there, a, uh, is there a strategy that you're employing, maybe trying something different to, to, to keep that money flowing? Well, I think that's what it's going to take right now is a private donor to step in and, and believe that these assets are valuable enough for, uh, for exploration and ocean exploration to continue the work that we've been doing for over three decades um, because it's, it's pretty clear that it's not coming from NOAA or from other government sources right now. And you would imagine if uh, Richard Branson can spend millions and millions of dollars for a single trip to a single location and come back up, that amount of money would fund an, a program like yours for quite amount of for much longer than twenty minutes, certainly. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, the, the, our, the, this program operates on about three million uh, a year to support the whole program. That's our administrative science staff, two submersibles, a ship, and um, uh, the submersibles. Uh, they were they were built in the early seventies, but. Um, uh, they, actually, they were built for about four million each in the early '70s, and uh, they would be um, they would cost up over fifty million to replace now. Mm-hmm. And um, the the if you maintain them well, these submersibles can serve science and exploration uh, for decades to come. And these subs are still in their prime. In That's that a respect. solid investment. And they've, they've evolved as there's very few components that are really original from when they were built in the '70s. Um, the command spheres, which still have another thirty years on them, and and a few other things. Everything else has uh, been improved. So where can we find out more information about Hurl and your, you know, quest for sustainability? Well, uh, the website is www.soest.hawaii.edu slash capital H-U-R-L. Sounds good. Or you can find us on Friends of Hurl on Facebook. Good. We'll definitely be keeping track of you guys. Steve Price and Terry Kirby, both pilots for the Hawaii Undersea Research Laboratory, and we want to thank you both for joining us today. Well, we're glad to be here. Yeah, thank you very much. It <laughs> Thanks was for the opportunity. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll explore the concept of geyser time. Geyser time. If you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called The Weather and a song called 1983. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.